I don't really feel like a guest speaker, but uh, I'm also an elder here at the church, and I am also a member of the teaching pillar. And if you haven't yet signed up for a pillar, let me encourage you to do that. So let me pray and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit, and I pray that both would work in our hearts and lives today. And when we leave here, we would be different people, more like your son who paid the price for our sin. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. When you only come up here every six months, you forget a lot of things. In East Texas, uh, there is a school named Laterno University. It's a small industrial engineering school. I doubt I may be the only person in the room other than my wife who's ever heard of it. Its namesake is a man named R.G. Letourneau. And R.G. Letourneau made a fortune in big earth-moving equipment. It was calculated that during the invasion of Europe during World War II, that as much as 70% of the heavy equipment that the Allies used were built by Robert Letourneau. But Robert Letourneau was more than just a businessman. He was, first and foremost, a Christian. It is reliably reported that Letourneau, at one point, set aside 90% of his yearly salary and that of his company profits for the ministry of the gospel, living on only 10%. When I read that, I asked myself, What motivates an individual, what drives an individual to set aside 90% of their salary and 90% of their company profits for the sake of the gospel? At the other end of the spectrum, we have the story of the widow in Mark chapter 12. Then Jesus sat down opposite the offering box and watched the crowd putting coins into it. Many rich people were throwing in large amounts. And a poor widow came and put in two small coins worth less than a penny. He called his disciples and said to them, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more in the offering box than all the others. For they all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in what she had to live on everything she had. What motivates, what drives an individual in spite of their poverty to put in a couple copper coins worth a penny and that was all she had? In the New Testament letter of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul records for us an incident in which he shows how it's possible for people, whether rich or poor or anywhere in between, to be able to demonstrate such profound generosity. Beginning in chapter eight, verses one through five. And now brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing with this servants, with this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected. 
but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. The first thing I want us to see this morning is that first and foremost, generosity is motivated by grace. If I go back to verse one, it says, and now brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God gave, that God has given the Macedonian churches. Everything that follows in chapters eight and nine is due specifically because of the grace of God working in someone's life. You know, David has spent a good deal of time in the book of Ephesians these last few months, some of it talking about grace and what it does in the individual life of a believer. If you remember chapter two, verse eight says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The word grace is the same in both places. But that makes sense, doesn't it? Why should we think that once we come to faith in Christ that God's grace would no longer be active in our lives? Here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is telling us it is that same grace given by God that not only brings people to salvation, but that same grace also moves them to generosity. But what is the process that grace takes to work itself out in the life of a believer? The grace of God first moves, to submit, moves us to submit to Christ and then commit to the spiritual leaders he has placed over us. Verse five, and they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. One writer put it this way, the greatest expression of God's grace in a person's life is not its demonstration towards others, but its response to God and his cause. The most important thing for Paul is not that the Macedonians gave to help meet the needs of others, but they gave themselves first and foremost to God and to Paul as their spiritual leader. They submitted themselves to Christ and they committed themselves to their spiritual leaders and the grace of God moved them to generosity. Here's another quote. They recognized that dedication to Christ involves dedication to his servants and that dedication to them is in reality service for Christ. All was part of God's will. Once those two commitments were in place, the grace of God motivated them to generosity. Next we see grace can move you to generosity no matter what your circumstance may be. We saw that earlier in Mark chapter 12, but Paul brings it back to our attention again in verses two and three of 2 Corinthians. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Look at their circumstances. Undergoing persecution, experiencing what can only be viewed as abject poverty. And yet, what did grace produce? Overflowing joy in the midst of trial and rich generosity in spite of poverty. When I first thought about the phrase, excuse me, over, uh, overflowing joy in the midst of trial 
and rich generosity in spite of poverty, in spite of their poverty. When I first thought about the phrase welled up in the verse, it put me in the mind of a well so full that it just overflowed with water. That's what grace does in an individual's life. Years ago, I was working for a well drilling company. Uh, In fact, it was the first job I ever had out of college or out of high school before I went to college. Uh, We were drilling a well a couple of miles south of East Palestine. Uh, We'd only drilled about 10 feet in the ground and then all of a sudden water came gushing about five, six feet into the air. We had hit what is known as an artesian well. There was so much water in the ground that it just came gushing out. That's what's going on with these Macedonian believers. They were so full of the grace of God that their generosity could not be contained. It was like a well overflowing. Their hearts were so full of grace that at the first opportunity, it welled up to help meet the needs of other believers. And this all from a group of brothers and sisters whom they did not know and whom they had never met. I like what one writer says, their poverty no more impeded their generosity than their tribulation diminished their joy. For the Macedonians, joy and generosity went hand in hand. Look what it says about these believers. Out of the most severe trial, these people were undergoing persecution for their faith but it didn't diminish their joy. They were given the opportunity to help meet the needs of fellow believers. And verse four tells us entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded for the privilege to give. Paul tells us that the grace of God moved them to generosity in spite of their poverty. Another writer says this, only the grace of God can account for such generosity springing from the, so, from the soil of their extreme poverty on the one hand, while at the same time issuing forth from their overflowing joy on the other. But the same thing can be said for those at the other end of the financial spectrum. They need the grace of God in their life in order to be generous just as much as the poor. In fact, Paul points that out to the Corinthians who are clearly better off than the Macedonians. Chapter nine, verse eight, and God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that because you have enough of everything in every way at all times, you will overflow in every good work. Paul is confident that the grace of God can do in the life of the wealthy what it does in the life of the poor. And here is a group of believers clearly more financially secure than the Macedonian believers, yet Paul says that it is the grace of God that will cause them to overflow in every good work. There's not a believer in this room this morning, no matter what your financial resources may be, who does not need the grace of God in order to be generous. Next, grace moves believers to give voluntarily. Considering such generosity a privilege, not being pressured, but willingly. Verse three and four, 
entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. The New English translation puts it this way, they did so voluntarily, begging us with great earnestness for the blessing and fellowship of helping the saints. You can almost sense the urgency, the willingness of the Macedonians to help give other saints in need. Their willing desire to express their generosity was unbridled, it was unrestrained due to the grace of God in their life. There is this amazing story near the end of the book of Exodus that mimics what's going on here. Moses has been charged by God to build the tabernacle, Israel's central place of worship. The only problem is that he has nothing in order to build it with. And so the call goes out. Beginning in Exodus 35, verse 4, Moses spoke to the whole community of the Israelites, take an offering for the Lord. Let everyone who has a willing heart bring an offering to the Lord. So the whole community of the Israelites went out from the presence of Moses. Everyone whose heart stirred him to action and everyone whose spirit was willing came and brought the offering for the Lord for the work of the tent of meeting, for his service and for the holy garments. They came, men and women alike who had willing hearts. The nation of Israel was stirred to generosity, all those who had willing hearts. And not just once, but time and time again. So all the skilled people, beginning in chapter 36, it says that all the skilled people who were building the tabernacle, they came to Moses and said, the people are bringing much more than is needed. And Moses instructed them to take this message throughout the camp, saying, let no man or woman do any more work for the offering for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from giving any more. Now the materials were more than enough for them to do all the work. I love what it says at the end of verse six. So the people were restrained from bringing any more. Their willingness to be involved in giving for the work of the tabernacle overflowed to the point they had to be told to stop. Imagine for a moment getting that email from David. Dear four milers, stop being so generous. We have more than enough to carry on the various ministries here at Four Mile. How awesome would that be? Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Paul echoes what's going on in Exodus. Each one of you should give just as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. Giving is the responsibility of the entire body of Christ, not just a few. Look at how Paul opens verse 7. Each one of you, that's an inclusive statement. It includes all of us. No one is left out. God wants all of us to be generous, but how? The rest of the verse puts a couple of modifiers on the way we are to give. First, we have the phrase, just as he has decided in his heart. Giving is to be a personal decision that comes from the heart after a time of thoughtful consideration. The word decided could also be translated purpose, just as he has purposed in his heart. 
Have you ever had a purpose in your life? Maybe you have one now. Going to a particular college, getting a better job, starting a new business, any number of things. But how does it come about? We sit down and we think through what we need to do in order to make it happen. Our purpose becomes for us a firm decision. And that's what God wants it to be when we give. I really like the way Gene Peterson translates this verse in the message. He says, I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and make up your mind what you will give. The second modifier is this, not reluctantly or under compulsion. We've all experienced it before. How many times have you seen the young child standing next to the open sore? Or the emaciated woman holding a starving child or a dog in a kennel, hardly able to turn around and never getting out, hopeless and helpless. What happens? We get this overwhelming desire to help. And even as we write the check, in the back of our mind we're thinking, I really shouldn't do this, but if I don't help, what will happen? What will happen to that dog, to that woman, to that child? You know, it's bad enough that society seeks to manipulate us but we see it all the time in the church around the world. Paul says, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Again, Gene Peterson from the message says, that will protect you, and I love this phrase, that will protect you from sob stories and arm twisting. And we've all heard the stories. We've all had our arms twisted, but that is not how God wants people to give. According to this verse, first, Paul tells us to be deliberate, even thoughtful. Second, to resist someone pulling at our heartstrings. And for what reason? We find that at the end of the verse, because God loves a cheerful giver. God loves it when the giver delights in the giving. Paul says, think about what you have. Think about what you can give in relation to your resources and do it cheerfully. Let me ask you this. What are the benefits of generosity? Uh, there are more than you might imagine, both physically and spiritually. First, and undoubtedly the most obvious, generosity meets the needs of saints both inside and outside of Four Mile. The first part of verse 12 in chapter 9 says this, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Because of your generosity, people are being fed, clothed, counseled, marriages rebuilt, lives transformed, people are being taught the scriptures, and people are coming to Christ in faith. I was talking about you, by the way. Sometimes I think we don't do a good enough job of letting people know what their generosity is accomplishing. Second, generosity builds a bond of love and community between those who give and those who receive. Talking about the Jerusalem church who will receive the gift from the Macedonian and Corinthians, Paul writes this near the end of chapter 9. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you 
because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Another translation says this, and in their prayers on your behalf, they long for you because of the extraordinary grace God has shown to you. There is this immediate bond that develops between the giver and those who receive. What we see in this verse is the recipients of the gift praying for those who sent it. Paul says, and in their prayers, their hearts will go out to you. The idea is those benefiting from the gift long to get to know the givers better, to enjoy their fellowship, to develop a closer relationship. Three groups of believers who have never met but are bound together into a single community because of the grace of God. I doubt that there is anyone in this room who having been on the receiving end of God's grace through the generosity of another believer does not experience this same bond of love and community that Paul is discussing here. Third, and by far the most important reason for generosity, it brings glory to God. Allow me to rephrase that. God prospers us not so when we are generous, we can say, hey, look at what I have done. God prospers us so that when we are generous, others will say, look at what God has done. Unless we are tempted to feel somewhat proud when it comes to our generosity, Paul repeats a little phrase throughout these two chapters that helps to keep our pride in check. Several times in these two chapters, he repeats the phrase, thanks to God. Paul understands the source of generosity and he does not want us to be in doubt. 2 Corinthians 9 and 11 says, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing and many expressions of thanks to God. What Paul wants us to know is that the real giver in this whole situation is God himself. He is the source of grace and he is the object of thanksgiving, praise, and glory. Verse 13 of chapter 9 through the evidence of this service, they, that is the recipients, will glorify God because of your obedience to your confession in the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your sharing with them and with everyone. Paul points out two reasons why God is glorified. First, God is glorified when believers' lives match their confession of faith through obedience. If we claim to be a believer in the gospel of Christ, then our lives should reflect it. And second, God is glorified by those whose needs have been met by the generosity of others. We have two signs here at Four Mile, one at the entrance when you're coming through into the sanctuary and then one over my shoulder. Humility and God's glory alone. Paul wants us to be mindful of the fact that we are to be humble even as we are being generous. And that your generosity should result in one thing and one thing only. 
and that is God's glory alone. What I find interesting about this passage is that the grace of God has turned the normal church narrative upside down. Usually it's the church leadership that's pleading for people to be more generous. Here it is the persecuted, the poverty-stricken churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, all pleading with God for the privilege of giving to other saints in need. But isn't that what the grace of God does in the life of a believer? It turns things inside out, upside down, so that we find ourselves doing things that the old self would never have done. Chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians highlights several characteristics of grace-motivated giving. I've tried to touch on some of them. Uh, undoubtedly, someone else could probably see more. Uh, I've listed them in the above slide over my shoulder with the chapter and verse. Uh, we're going to leave that slide up as we go to our time of reflection. If you have a cell phone, take a picture. If you're old-fashioned like me, write it down on a piece of paper or in the margin of your Bible. Uh, take it home with you. Take some time this week to pray about, to think over, asking God to work in our collective lives to give us the kind of grace that he gave to the Macedonian Christians. Grace-motivated giving, it is voluntary, not enforced. It is generous, not miserly or tight-fisted. It is deliberate or systematic, not haphazard. It is a privilege, not pressured. It builds community, not isolation. And most of all, it glorifies God, not self. Let's pray. Father, I'm mindful of the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew when he said, let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. God, we need your grace to be the generous people that you desire for us to be, that we might bring glory and honor to you as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.